I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 5 to begin with. I've been asking the question, probably teasing you a bit for a while, about why pray? And promising an answer to that, and we're getting very close <laughs> to why pray. You know, you only have a few choices. Um, either you pray because you believe God answers prayer and it's going to make a difference, um, or you don't believe God answers prayer, and then you're just kind of uh, throwing things up, hoping something might happen without any real assurance. A lot of believers are struggling in their whole prayer life because they don't know what they can ask with assurance or what they might not ask or how to pray and all of those kinds of things. And for many people, their prayer life is disappointing because they're not getting the things they're asking for, or it's very vague because they're not asking for specific things, so they don't know whether they're getting or or not. It's kind of like saying, Lord, give us weather today. Well, we had it. (laughs) No matter what it is, you got it. Bless all the missionaries. How do you know if that happens or not? Well, some of them were blessed. All of them may have been blessed, but you don't know. You never get the feedback on that. A lot of people pray that way. But where I believe God wants us to be as His children is praying specific prayers that are specifically answered in real time and space that we can see that I ask and this happened because I prayed. So, I'm beginning to move into the realm now this morning of why pray, understanding the authority of the believing child of God that comes to the Father by faith and prays specific prayers that God specifically answers. As I approach this, I hate to start out things from a negative standpoint, but sometimes you, you have to clear up the nebulous and the, and the what-ifs before you move into the, to the solid positive. And this morning I'm kind of starting out in the negative because I'm using this passage from Hebrews chapter 5 where the writer of Hebrews says, Solid meat is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I want to take you somewhere in an understanding of the subject of prayer that frankly is beyond the milk of the Word, it goes to the meat of the Word. And in doing that, there is always a certain element of risk that people will misunderstand or will take the truth presented and push it out of balance and thus end up in a a wrong path rather than the right path. I want to read to you from Hebrews 5, just to give you a little bit of context for why I'm saying that. In Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to Jewish believers how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of the Old Testament foreshadowing and symbolism. And in doing that, he says in verse 7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that paragraph is not my subject this morning, but I just want you to know, you could take that paragraph and really go off the wire with it. If you didn't understand it in the context of all of the scripture. And the writer of Hebrews recognizes this because he says, we have much to say about this. This whole subject of Jesus and and how he relates to all of the Old Testament uh, work and prophecy and symbolism. But he says, it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, by this time, in other words, you've been saved long enough, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still an infant and is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have been trained to distinguish good from evil. Now, there are a couple of things from that passage that we gather by implication. One is, there are levels of spiritual development. That's not new to you. We've talked about that many, many times. But there are spiritual babies, there are spiritual young people, there are spiritual adults. There are levels of spiritual development. And when you're a spiritual infant, you need milk. And milk, the milk of the Word, is considered very rudimentary, very elementary, the basics. It basically involves how to become a believer, how to, how to be saved, how to come to know the Father through Jesus Christ, have your sins forgiven, this is the very beginning. <clears throat> but you must understand, when you're born again, you're a, you're a baby. And you're born out of a world of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. You're born from a history of living under the world system. And your thinking has been immersed in the ways of the natural man. And you're a new baby in Christ. And there's all kinds of things to learn. And the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that it, there is a danger in giving meat to babies. Because if you give them solid food, they will likely choke on it, and it will become harmful to them instead of helpful. Instead of growing, it may threaten their development. And he says that, if we can take that analogy and move it back to the realm of spiritual growth, he says that because if you're a babe in Christ and you're still living in the realm of very elementary truths, very basic truths, your mind is more of the natural man of the flesh than it is of the spirit. You're thinking in the ways of the world instead of the ways of God. And somebody comes along and gives you spiritual meat. Your tendency is to try to apply that in worldly, natural ways. And that leads to error, which ultimately can be 
unhealthy for you. So, as I come to this whole subject of intercessory prayer and the authority of the believer, I do so with the knowledge that in sharing it, there is danger because it is, it is a relatively deep teaching and there is danger in there that people will misunderstand it and misapply it. In fact, it has been grossly misunderstood and misapplied by many uh, groups out there, uh, some popular radio and television preachers and speakers, and whole movements of Christians in our time that have misunderstood and misapplied the whole concept of the authority of the believer in Jesus Christ and our authority upon this world, upon this earth. And we do have authority under Jesus Christ, under his headship. There is authority for us. And that authority is authority in prayer. But there has been a gross misunderstanding of what that means in many circles. So I want to get into some of that this morning before we go on to the teaching about prayer. And I want to say to you, because of the weather, we're a very small crowd this morning. And this message next week is going to be on the DVD on the back table. Your friends who are not here today need to hear this message to go with the rest of it. And just to give you a little insight, I am only going to get through point one this morning. I actually have three sermons here. I I didn't think that when I put it down, but I, I realized it soon after. So I'm only going to get through the first point this morning. And uh this message is going to be available on DVD. And everyone needs to hear this entry-level message. They need to hear the warnings, because if you don't get it, if everyone doesn't get it, then the danger exists that they will misapply the rest of it. Back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, the scripture says this, if you want to look at that for a moment, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. And he specifically names, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creeping thing that walks on the face of the planet. In other words, as Adam and Eve were made, and the last crowning mark of God's glorious creation, they were the end product. God made them last. And it's revealed to us as he makes them that the earth and all that it contains was made for their enjoyment, for their blessing. And he gives to them authority. And he says to them, have dominion, rule over it. And, and I did a, I looked up some of those words, I did some, some background research on dominion theology. By the way, I can't even go there this morning, that's a whole other realm. But, but suffice it to say, I do not believe that in any shape, fashion, or form, that, that we're going to get politically, uh, gain political control of the planet and take over the world and make it Christian. 
That, that basically is dominion theology. That just does not square with scripture anywhere. And that, that's not going to happen. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not all about becoming political as a, as a dominionist that if I work hard enough and gain political control, I'm going to dominate the earth. But, but God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion. In other words, exercise control. I've put this world under your authority. But we don't see that today, do we? When's the last time you spoke to a grizzly bear and it obeyed you? Ever had that experience? (laughs) I thank God I've never met a grizzly face to face, but if I did, I wouldn't presume to tell him what to do. Uh, I would be looking for somewhere to get out of his way. Because we don't see everything under dominion now. Uh, We don't have control over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every creeping thing that walks on the face of the planet. Something has happened drastically that has gone wrong. And what we see today is survival of the fittest. What we see is a prey and predator relationship in the animal kingdom, in the fish and in the fowl. What we see is a world that's out of control, that we have very little real control over. And the more we try to take control in our natural thinking, the the bigger mess we make. You know, most of the diseases that we're struggling with in the West right now, we've made ourselves through pollution or, or, or purification or treatment or processing or something. The more we try to take control, the bigger mess we make. We don't see that kind of dominion. And so the problem is, is that when Adam and Eve sinned, what they didn't realize was that they were being tricked into surrendering their authority. And God had made them to walk with Him. And the devil suggested to them that they could be free agents. They could be autonomous. They could do whatever they wanted to do. What he didn't bother to tell them was they were designed to be in a dependent relationship either upon God or some other spiritual force. And when they rebelled against God, thinking they were going to be autonomous and independent, they actually came under bondage to sin and Satan. And as a consequence of that, they lost all of their influence and authority. They came under the dominion of Satan, who then, through through that loss of their position, exercised a measure of influence in this planet that brought destruction and damage and despair. Now death reigns. Now disease reigns. Now... Uh, All kinds of turmoil and problems occur. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to to redeem what was lost, to recover it, to restore, and to gain back what had been lost. And through salvation, we are invited to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, whereby, as His ambassadors, we can move upon this earth under His authority and under His power as His agents recovering and reclaiming the souls of men that have been lost in sin. And that's the whole message of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a way out, there's a way back, 
There's a way to connect with God. We have been given that message of reconciliation. We have been given the the privilege of joining Jesus Christ in praying back what was lost, recovering it for the kingdom, and ultimately seeing the king himself come back to this world and reign in, in majesty. And where I want to take us in our understanding of prayer is the privilege and authority that we have as believing children of God to join with God through Jesus Christ in this grand effort to expand the kingdom and and bring back the king and win what was lost and recover it. And it's through intercessory prayer that God gives us the privilege of joining him. But once you begin to talk about that authority, once you begin to talk about recovering that which was lost and coming back into our own through Jesus Christ as people who have influence upon this planet in the spiritual realm, if you take truth and you start to nudge it out of balance, it very quickly can become heresy. Do you know what a tangent is? Did you do that in geometry when you were in school? You, you, you drew the circle, and then you draw the, drew the tangent to the circle. You remember what it was? It was a straight line that intersected the circle at at least one point. And that line was the tangent. And all you had to do was kind of magnify that and expand it a little bit. And if the circle's going around like this, and your tangent is sitting up here on the top of it going somewhere else... They're together at one point, but the tangent moves off here and the circle goes down here, and pretty soon the circle's down here and the tangent is way off base. No longer is it anywhere near the circle. It's gone way out of line, so to speak. And any time you take biblical truth and you push it out of balance, you're off on a tangent. And that tangent is going to take you far away from truth and sometimes far away from God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said with regard to that teaching about Jesus, I would like to explain this to you in depth, but you're not able to take it yet because if I give it to you, you're going to go off on a tangent. You don't have your senses trained to discern good and evil. And I want to say about this this teaching about prayer through the Scriptures, that if we misunderstand the authority that we have in Jesus Christ, it's going to take us a long way from God, instead of taking us deeper into the truth of God. So it's important that the the next, it's probably going to be three messages, at least next Sunday, and, and not Easter Sunday, but the Sunday after, I'll be completing this this study guide, it's very important that you listen closely to what I'm saying so that you don't (laughs) take something here that you heard and take it off in the wrong direction. One of the first things that I want us to understand is that some of the ways that people have misapplied the understanding of the authority of the believer in prayer is that they have somehow lost sight of or minimized the sovereignty of God. And I want you to know very straightforwardly that the Scripture teaches that our God is a sovereign God. Sovereignty means He rules. 
He's in charge. He has authority. He is the one that sits upon the heavens in the circle of the earth. He is the one who holds everything together by the word of his power. He is the one who has pre-told us history. We call that prophecy. And he has mapped out for us the unfolding of his plan of salvation and of the course and history of mankind. And he has given us the revelation so that, as we often say, we've read the end of the book and we know how it turns out. Because God is sovereign and his purposes cannot be thwarted. We will never, either by our omission or by something we do, throw God off track. It is never going to happen that God does not accomplish His purposes because you personally did or did not do something. And that's important for us to grasp. I do not mean by that that there will not be people praying for all of those marvelous unfolding of end-time events. I don't mean to say that prayer is not important in the process. But what I do want us to understand is whether or not you participate in that is not going to hold up the plans of God. It's just going to make a difference in your own personal life, whether you get the joy and and privilege of walking with Jesus in some of these grand themes. But let me say some other things that are in relation to this that are, that are also important for us to grasp. We talk in terms, economic terms, we talk about macroeconomy and microeconomy. You know the difference in that? Macro is what the whole United States is doing. Or right now, we're talking about a recession that may be global. That's macroeconomics. But if you talk about how your business is doing, here in McHenry or Crystal Lake or wherever, that's microeconomics. Microeconomics affects you and your family and, and people right around you and maybe a few employees. Microeconomics may be uh, these um, crocheted doilies and things that are sitting out on the table in the foyer that are helping uh, women in Kosovo earn a living on a micro scale to help their family. Macroeconomics is the big grand themes that drive the nation. I believe God has a macroeconomy and a microeconomy of prayer. On the macro scale, His will is going to be done. But I believe that we will find out on the micro scale that things did or did not happen in McHenry, did or did not happen in your family, did or did not happen in your sphere of influence because you did or did not join with God's purposes in prayer. And, and you can argue both sides of this coin from election and predestination and all of that, and you can get bogged down in a bunch of argument that, that is fruitless and endless and may lead to the ruin of the hearers, for all I know, as uh, Paul says to Timothy. But this I do know. God knows every person that's going to be saved from the beginning of the planet. They're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Every single soul that's written in that book will come to Christ. They are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You may find that someone's name was not there in the foreknowledge of God because you did not pray for them 
on a personal basis. And God will stir you up in that purpose and plan. And so on a local level and a micro level, prayer is a real... I'm not just going through the motions. I'm engaged with God and His Spirit in His processes and His purposes. And, and God told of the prophet... He said, if I tell you to go and warn someone about their wickedness and their evil ways and tell them to repent, and you do so and they don't repent, their blood is on their hands. But if I tell you to go and warn them and you don't warn them, they will die in their sin, but I will hold their blood, you guilty of their blood, on your hands because you did not do what I told you to do. You cannot run to election and absolve yourself of all responsibility. We have responsibility before God. He gives us privilege, and with it comes responsibility. And so, we need to understand that we cannot limit the sovereignty of God. We cannot push Him to do things He would not otherwise do. We cannot prevent Him from doing the things He's going to do but we are called to walk with Him in the things that He is doing and to join Him in the process of intercession. And it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Secondly, some people have become puffed up with a false sense of power and authority. If I say to you that your prayers are important in the work of God, and then you come back and say to me, I did thus and so by prayer, I want to suggest to you that you have misunderstood something very important. God's power is the power that's at work. God does the work. And for you to claim credit for the work of God is a complete misunderstanding of the role of prayer. I once heard a man in a, in a tape, I had a tape of his, I knew him, I had read a number of his books, he was a key leader in the charismatic movement back in the 70s. But he made this claim. Actually, he made several claims that were pretty crazy. But one of them, he said, was, it was my prayers that won World War II for the Allies. God told me how to pray, and it was my prayers that won World War II for the Allies. He also said it was his prayers that spared Israel in the Six-Day War. And he had this special connection with God. And God would tell him what he, wanted him what he wanted him to do, and he would pray for it, and his prayers were changing the course of history. I knew he'd lost his mind when he said that he had become a manifest son of God and was no longer under the constraints of physical laws, that he could appear and reappear wherever he needed to be, and walls and food and other substances were no longer important to him. And uh, he had become glorified in a resurrected body while still in this life. That was proof positive that the man had lost his marbles. 
But he went into this teaching on authority and took on the idea that it was his personal work that was accomplishing world, world schemes. Friends, I don't have any doubt, as you read the history of, of World War II, for example, and you read some of the battles and some of the strategic points where, in, in, for all practical purposes, the Allies should have lost that situation and, and miraculous deliverance occurred, to spare the world from coming under the domination of a Hitler who was not the Antichrist, but certainly an Antichrist, who was also bent on the destruction of the Jews. To look at the intervention of God, there's no question that prayer specifically intervened. And many times in World War II and other wars, where the outcome in the history of God's plan for the world has been strategic. But for one person to say, it was my praying that did it. I'm the one that interceded, and I won that particular victory. Is like, man, where are you from? What kind of arrogance is that? What kind of pride is that? God gives us a role to pray as intercessors. He invites us to, to, to come into His heart, into His throne room, and pray for those things that are on his heart. He gives us the privilege of participation. But when he takes action, it's his action. And you can be sure that on those grander themes of macro history, that God has thousands of prayer warriors engaged in the process. We need to recognize that God is the one doing the acting. God is the one exhibiting the power. And my part in that is the, the humble privilege of coming into His presence as His Spirit leads me and asking for those things that He wants to accomplish. And He takes me into His confidence and gives me that privilege. A third area in this whole teaching on the authority of the believer that has really gone off track and there are groups out there, they're still out there broadcasting on the airwaves, television, radio, whatever other media they can accomplish, and you've, you've heard all of these things. But some have fallen into sorcery and witchcraft with false doctrines of name it, claim it, speak the word of faith, that is, verbalize the word of faith, and a positive confession. Let me give you some of the, the, you know the teaching, but just for the sake of reminding us, let me go through some of that again. There are Bible teachers out there today that say that you're a prince or a princess with God. That He has called you to be His child. You ought to be a child of privilege. If you're a child of God, you should dress like it, drive like it, live like it. You're, you're the, uh, among the crown princes and princesses of the kingdom. You should be living like children of the king. And so you should claim that money that God wants to give you. Give 10% to the 800 numbers at the bottom of the screen for those of you that would like to make a donation right now. Give your money and God will give you more money back. That's the law of reciprocity. You give and you get more. Claim that Mercedes. Claim that big house. You're the child of the king. Live like the child of the king. You ought to be showing people how it's done. 
whole world should be wanting to be on your team. The only thing wrong with that picture is there's nothing in the Bible anywhere that supports it. In fact, when I read my Bible, I would say one of the the, the outstanding heroes of the faith in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. This child of the king had an interesting testimony. He said, I was beaten times that so many times I can't even remember it. I was left for dead more than once. I received all but one lash short of a death penalty on several occasions. I was shipwrecked. I was awash in the sea, hanging onto a board. I didn't have my coat at one point. I was hungry at other times. I was without adequate clothing and covering. I did without because I had purposed to carry the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, and I paid a price to do it. It cost me dearly. He gave up the comforts. He gave up the privileges. He gave up, and and when Demas left his side because of the hardship, he said, Demas wants the Mercedes and the big houses and the comfortable clothes. He didn't say that. What he said was, Demas loved this present world, so he has left me and gone back home. But what he was saying was, Demas was into comfort, and he couldn't hack it anymore. And that is said as a matter of derision that Demas couldn't cut it as a true, committed proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he went home. Paul paid a high price for his faith. Many believers across the world pay a high price. Some people used to used to ask me, you know, he said, when, when are you going to teach what you believe about the rapture? And I said, well, when we're in the tribulation. Because people will be inclined to believe me then. But there's no point in talking about it before. It disappoints a lot of people. But let me say, If you go to China and tell Christians in China, if you go to Vietnam and tell Christians in Vietnam, if you go to points of Africa and tell Christians there and points of Indonesia that they're not going to have to go through tribulation, they're going to look at you like you've lost your mind. They're suffering and dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. And God counts them blessed because they have the privilege of serving Christ even to death as martyrs. They don't have easy street. They don't drive fine cars and live in big houses and have all kinds of wealth. There are ordinary people who give their tithe to the work of God that do without because of it. They have chosen to invest in the kingdom, as Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. To invest in the kingdom of God, to invest in eternity, is to invest in a heavenly kingdom. And there is no guarantee that you're going to get back more than you give. That you're going to get all this money back. 
Jesus held up the widow who put her two coins into the offering and said, she has given more than anyone here, signifying that God counts your giving by what you keep, not by what you give. And guess what? She gave all she had. I don't hear any more in the story where Jesus says, so tomorrow she's going to get a check in the mail for all kinds of money. What Jesus said was, she today has demonstrated her love for God, her trust in God by giving everything she had. And sometimes God calls us to sacrifice. Man, there is no promise in Scripture that just because you're His child, you're going to have everything you want. There's nothing that says that. It's ludicrous to think it. And the people out there that are teaching this doctrine of you have a right as a child of God to live like a child of the King, you should have all these worldly things. That teaching is a heretical, it's a heretical lie. It couldn't be further from the truth. Following Jesus and this earth is a costly proposition. And he makes that very clear. Do not be surprised, he said, if the world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're going to identify with me, the world is not going to love you. Don't be surprised if it's costly, if you have to leave father and mother, if, you, if you're separated from family members because of their unbelief. Don't be surprised if you pay a price. To the, to the Hebrews, the very people that the writer of Hebrews was addressing, don't be surprised if your business fails. Don't be surprised if people won't buy from you because you have Jesus in your heart. Don't be surprised if you're suffering because you're a Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. Not, you know, prosperity in a worldly sense. Some have fallen into sorcery and witchcraft through the speak the word of faith movement. Here's how this goes. You must speak out loud what you want to see accomplished. It is your words that move the spiritual realm and cause things to happen when you speak the Word. And, and, and you hear it kind of taught like that. You have to speak the Word of faith. Like, you've got to verbalize it. Okay? What happens if you're in intensive care on a respirator? You can't pray anymore? Nothing's going to happen? There's nothing in the Scripture that says you have to speak out loud to do anything. Some of the lies that come out of this, and, and by the way, let me hasten to say the reason this is witchcraft is what is the essence of witchcraft? There are certain incantations, there are certain words that you can use, there are certain rituals that you can perform that will cause the spirit realm to be favorable to you and to give you what you want. If you learn how to manipulate the spirit world with these statements, these phrases, and these rituals, you will be able to get what you want. 
That's witchcraft, my friends. That is not prayer. I want to tell you something. There is no secret key to unlocking God's power so you can get what you want. There is no such thing. There is a relationship, a personal relationship you build with God through Jesus Christ by His Spirit, whereby in fellowship with Him, you can merge into the will that He has for this world and be a part of the answer. But there's nothing in the Scripture that says if you use the right words, you can manipulate God to give you answers. I don't care how that teaching is presented, it's not true. That is the essence of witchcraft. But aside from that, the concept is, I have to verbalize it. Why do they say I have to speak it out loud? Well, because your words have power. Okay, what, what, what's the problem with that statement? Who has power? Jesus Christ has power. My words don't have any power. Jesus Christ has power. So it's not my words, it's Jesus Christ that has the power. That's the first thing. The second thing is, okay, you speak it out loud because that's how, that's how the spirit world pays attention. The devil can't read your mind. You have to rebuke him out loud. Let me take you back to intensive care. You're on the respirator and you're being oppressed by the enemy. What? You can't resist him? Because you can't verbalize? There's nothing that says that you can't rebuke the devil in your mind, in your spirit. There's nothing that says the devil can't read your mind. Of course he can read your mind. He's not limited by your cranium. He can float right through there. By the way, don't think you're so special that Satan personally is going to show up and try to discover your thoughts. He's got millions of demons to do that. But just think about it. When you're tempted, how does that temptation present itself? Many times. How, what, what is your experience? Think about the last time that... Um, Perhaps you were uh, checking out of somewhere and the clerk, the cashier gave you back too much change. Okay, and you realize you got too much change back. Now, maybe you didn't even think about that. Maybe you just responded and, and returned the change. Okay, fine. Or the dollars or whatever it was. But how, do, how does the temptation come to keep it? Have you thought about that? Did you ever hear something in your mind that says, you ought to keep that? Did you ever hear that in your mind? You don't have to stop at this stop sign. No, there's nobody coming. You can, just, you can just drive through. Do you hear that? Where does that come from? Everybody says, well, that's my thoughts. They're not all your thoughts. I'm, don't believe me. You have plenty of, of your own that can get you in trouble. I'm not suggesting for a heartbeat that every weird, strange, wicked thought that goes through your mind comes from the enemy. But many of them do. You're walking down the road, minding your own business, walking in the Spirit, following Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden this thought comes into your brain that has nothing to do with your spiritual walk. It will take you away from God. This thought is in it. Where did it come from? I submit to you that many of those thoughts come from demonic powers that wrestle against us. Paul said our warfare is not against flesh and blood, 
but we wrestle against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. We wrestle against principalities and powers. We're fighting demons. How do we fight demons? Because they are constantly listening in on my conversation in my head and adding a commentary that is diabolic. And the favorite trick, I, I wish I could have seen or heard the debate. I hear there was a debate the other evening on is there a Satan or not. I think it was Thursday night. I'd have been interested in hearing how that went on. But I know there's a Satan because evil powers talk to me on a daily basis. Is this on the recording? This is going to go out over the Internet. <laughs> Everybody's going to hear that. They may send the men in the little white coats for me pretty soon. But the enemy wars against me. And I have to monitor the traffic in my brain. That's a part of knowing the Word of God. I have to monitor the thoughts. This is my filter. And the Holy Spirit speaks to me always in harmony with His written Word. And my thoughts, as so far as they're aligned with God's thoughts, are in harmony with the written Word. And the enemy tries to distract me from the truth of God and move me in a different direction by speaking lies to me in my mind. And I'm here to tell you, you do not have to talk to him out loud to rebuke him. There's a, when my son Stephen was three years old, he could talk to you about spiritual warfare. I think it's one of the things that, that, that made his life so difficult in, in so many ways. Because when he was three years old, he said to me one day, he said, Dad, I have three voices in my brain. Now, he was not schizophrenic. He was accurately describing spiritual warfare. He said, I hear one voice that always tells me to do good things. I think that's the voice of God. He said, I hear another voice that's always telling me to do bad things. He says, I think that's the devil. And he said, then I think I have my own voice. And he said, sometimes I have to have this talk between them. Three years old. He knew more then than many grown-up believers figure out. Because there's three voices going on in your head. The Holy Spirit has access. The, the enemy has access. And your thought life, where you live, is in there in your head too. And you have a filter, the Word of God, by which you can measure everything that goes on. And what do you do when you hear those suggestions that come from the enemy? You don't have to speak out loud standing there at the cash register the Lord Jesus Christ rebuke you, Satan. Cashier is going to look at you just before she dials 911 because that's going to scare the living daylights out of her. But in your mind, you can resist the enemy. That is not of God, I refuse that. Boom. In your mind. Listen, I pray all day long like this. I pray all day long. In, in all kinds of circumstances. I got a phone call last evening. It, it required wisdom. I'm talking to the person on the telephone and I'm talking to God at the same time. God, tell me what to say. Give me wisdom. Give me insight. I need to understand. We're having a three-way conversation. I'm in the middle. That's my role in that moment. And I'm asking God, and, and I'm hearing things go on in my mind as I'm listening in my ear 
to the person on the other end of the phone. I'm having a conversation with God. I don't have to pray all that out loud. That goes on all day long with me. And you don't have to speak that out loud. I have had times of oppression that have been so severe in the middle of the night that I woke up out of a sound sleep unable to speak. And the only rebuking I could do was in my mind until the victory was won and I could speak. Uh, some of you can relate to that and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but I have had that kind of oppression and, and it begins in my mind, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ rebuke you. He is Lord. He is King of Kings. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. The Lord Jesus Christ rebuke you. You don't have to say things out loud. You don't have to verbalize them. God knows your spirit. He knows your heart. You can commune with Him. There is no magic in saying words out loud. There's no magic there. In fact, there's no magic in prayer. It's straightforward. It's communication with the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son. It's straightforward. Finally, there is an error that some get into that is called the positive confession. This is built on the other two concepts, but let me give you an illustration and then we'll launch into it. You've received the worst news from the doctor. He's used the C word. You have cancer. And now you're scurrying for all the help you can get. The tests have been scheduled the MRIs, the CAT scans, the results are in. There's a tumor there. The biopsy's in. It's malignant. And then you pick up this little book on faith healing. And in the little book it says, Believe that God will heal you. Speak the positive confession. I am healed. Say to the cancer, Cancer be gone. And now it's important that you speak the positive word. My cancer is gone. I don't have cancer. I'm healthy. I'm giving a positive confession. I'm healthy. I don't have cancer. If you still have a tumor on the CT scan, you have cancer and you are deluded. You have believed a lie. And all the positive confession in the world is not going to disappear the cancer. Now, I, I want to be very careful when I say that because sometimes God gives you a word where He reveals His intention and He tells you what He's going to do. And when you hear that word, it is a positive confession to say, God has told me I'm going to be healed which is vastly different from saying, I do not have cancer when you still have a tumor in your lung. If you've heard the promise of God to say He's going to heal you, embrace that truth and trust Him for it. But don't say that you're 
free of cancer until there's no more evidence on the CT scan and nothing in your blood and there's no evidence in your body of cancer, then you can give the word, I am healed. Until then, you're going to be healed. You've read the stories and you've met the people that have trusted God for healing from diabetes. They speak the positive confession, I'm going to be free of diabetes, and they quit taking their insulin, and some of them die. If God has told you he's going to heal you from diabetes, here's my advice. Keep measuring your blood sugar every day. Take your insulin. Eat properly. The day that your blood sugar begins to go low and you're doing everything right, then talk to your doctor about coming off of insulin and see what happens under control. Because if God is healing you, you will be healed. Your blood sugar will be normal. You know, you're not going to say, I don't have diabetes and your blood sugar is 400. I'm giving a positive confession. I'm not taking my insulin. No, but you're going into diabetic ketoacidosis and you're on your way to, to a diabetic coma. Don't go there. In the realm of finance, I have met people that have done this. And I've heard it taught. And it's absolutely scary. The mortgage payments coming up, the rent payments coming up or whatever, and they, they prayed and they said, okay, I'm believing God for my mortgage payment. God has told me to speak the word of faith. I'm speaking the word of faith on the positive confession. I have my mortgage payment. I write the check. I send it into the bank. God will put the money in my account before the check clears. You're deluded. You just wrote a bad check. That's a crime. That's not a word of faith. That's criminal. You can't do that. You can't write that check until the money is in your account. And so there's all this teaching out there. If I give the positive confession, that's going to make it happen. That's not going to make it happen. God's going to make it happen if He's told you it's going to happen and you're praying and trusting Him and until it happens, it ain't so. Now sometimes when God has told you, this is what I'm going to do, you can give that testimony. God has showed me He's going to do this. He's going to do this. I'm trusting Him for it. But until it has happened, you cannot declare that it has happened. There's nothing in the Scripture that tells me to declare something is true before it's true. And even A.B. Simpson in his great ministry of healing in the early days of the Christian Missionary Alliance, he had attracted a following of physicians who were believers that were willing to go with him. And whenever there was a healing that could be examined and verified, whenever there was that kind of healing, they examined the people and proved by medical evidence that healing had taken place. There wasn't any of that psychosomatic kind of uh, mumbo-jumbo and mind over matter and, you know, oh, my leg got lengthened and now I'm fine and all of that kind of stuff in Simpsons meetings. There were healings that occurred that were real healings because people's lives were changed. And it could be verified. 
And so as we get into this, and here's where I have to stop this morning, and, and I wish I didn't. I wish I could preach the whole message in one context, but the Puritan era is long gone, <laughs> and four-hour sermons are passé, so I won't go there. But here's where I have to stop. But I, I want you to understand where we are not going. We are not going to cast doubt upon the sovereignty of God. We are not going to think that we're so important that the world's future hangs on my prayers. We're not going to go to the place where we're claiming and declaring things that we have no warrant to claim or declare or claiming unwarranted material wealth that nowhere in Scripture does it suggest we're entitled to. We want to go to the place of prayer where we join with Jesus Christ in advancing the kingdom of God in the eternal battle for the souls of men and women to see them born again to a living hope to spend eternity in the presence of God. That is the warfare of prayer. And it is in that realm that God has given us authority. And it will translate out in real events in this world, but under the authority and the power and the plan of God. Father, I want to pray this morning that as we move into this area of our privilege of intercession and the power that you have chosen to exercise in respect to prayer, that we would be humble servants, graciously recognizing the privilege that we've been given to be ambassadors with Jesus Christ, and that we would come before you in humility and ask you what it is that's on your heart and mind, and take up the cause of prayer. And even as we pray for our neighbors, And we pray for our friends and our family to realize that it is your spirit at work in our hearts, inspiring and prompting. We would be sensitive to the work that you're doing. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.